Goodness weather, awesome. Amen. God is so good. Well, going to change gears on you just a little bit, just like I did on Sunday. I got to go to a uh, FCA. It was, uh, let me think of what it was called, not Fields of Faith, but Courts for Christ, Christ for Courts, something like that, some play on words. And uh, they had... Um, our pastor Justin to speak. And Justin in his message gave his testimony, which I had never heard. And it brought me back to a uh, crisis pregnancy center banquet where Pastor Richard Farley of Trinity Assembly gave his testimony. And uh, I went up to him and it just blew me away. If you've ever heard his testimony, it's unbelievable. I think his, both of his parents were killed in a car accident when he was very, very young at Maybe it was a fire. I thought it was a car accident. But when, the, but when the message got over, I was asking him, and he said, look, my staff didn't even know. You know, his church didn't even know. I think it was the first time he, I don't know that it, it was the first time he'd ever shared it. I'm probably messing this completely up. But I decided right then that you need to know who we are. You need to know what we've been through. And I just told Justin, I said, Justin, I hope you don't mind to share this to the whole body. But the body needs to know where you've come from. And really, he, he tied it into a message. It wasn't his testimony. It was a message to those kids. And it really reached them. But in the midst of that message was his testimony. And I want you to know, too, that your testimony is given to you to help somebody get free. It's not just for you. In fact, it's really not even that much for you. It's for someone else to get free. It says that we overcome Satan by the blood of the lamb and by the word of the testimony. So we need to give our testimony. Amen? Amen. So you guys all welcome, Pastor Justin. Let's just pray. Father, we pray that, uh, that you would open up our eyes. God, that uh, you would open up our ears. Lord, that, uh, that this wouldn't be anything that I've got on my heart, Lord, but that it would be a message from heaven, God, that you would bring power uh, into our lives to change our lives, God. We bless you in Jesus' name. Um, when, I, when I shared that, uh, read out of Second uh, Samuel 4, and there's a story as David is taking over from Saul, and that was a, a bloody takeover. One of the things that we kind of take for granted is that, you know, regardless of who you vote for, there is a peaceful transition of power. Aside from probably some office pranks, you know, someone floods out the bathroom or steals all, all the W's off of a keyboard or something like that. <laughs> Thank you guys. You guys are so sweet. Everybody give Coy a hand. Oh, it's just so good. Thanks, buddy. I appreciate it. Um, <laughs> I feel special. Um, there's a peaceful transition of power because when we vote for somebody new in the presidential office, the new president doesn't go kill the old president. Well, in a lot of American, or not American, well, kind of American history, a lot of world history, when there was a power change, you got to kill the old guy, which, you know, was nice for, for a lot of people. Well, in America, we don't do that. Well, in King David's time, he tried not to do that. God blessed King David to be the new king of Israel over Saul, picked David over Saul, and gave him like 30 years to, to kind of get the message of like, hey, I've picked this new guy. I haven't picked you. And I guess he let him stay on as like a severance package, but eventually Saul made enough dumb decisions that he got himself killed and got his son killed too. And as David was ascending onto the throne, all of Saul's kids wound up being killed. Real bloody. I don't 
I mean, David did intend to do that. Like, it wasn't like David looked up and said, oh, they all died. I don't know how. I mean, he, he killed all of Saul's kids. So in 2 Samuel 4, David's sitting on the throne, and he calls a guy up. His name's Ziba. And he says, hey, Ziba, you were one of uh, Jonathan's um, servants. And David had um, an intense bromance with Jonathan. It was like his best friend. One point in time, Jonathan said that I loved David better than, that of, than the love of a woman. So they had this real tight relationship. And so King David's talking to Ziba and says, hey, is there anyone still left in Jonathan's household, in Saul's household? And Ziba says, yeah. There's this one guy, his name's Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth was a kid that in the transition of power, uh, when David took the throne, he was a little baby being taken care of by, you know, a nursemaid or, or somebody in the house. David walked into the palace and everybody in Saul's household got out of town because they, they knew David showed up, David's the new guy, he's gonna slaughter us all. We gotta get out of here. So Mephibosheth's nursemaid picked him up and running, you know, like, it's like the tornado hits, you know, you always see in the news, like, get to the tub, get the mattresses over here. It was like a tornado hit Jerusalem. Mephibosheth gets picked up, little kid, and this nursemaid starts running through the halls of the palace while she trips and drops Mephibosheth on his legs. And in, you know, our modern medicine, if you break a, a leg, now it hurts. And that's about the worst thing that can happen to you is the pain is the worst part of it. Well, way back when, if you break a big bone, you release bone marrow into your bloodstream and you could die. So to say that the pain was like the least important part of a, of a big bone break is, you know, insignificant. The fact that Mephibosheth lived through this was a miracle, but he was crippled for the rest of his life. And in America, we, we get frustrated at our welfare system a lot of the times because we say, well, those people need to get a job. Just go get a job. Back, way back when, back in my day, we didn't have people like this. Well, yeah, because they starved to death. You know, they didn't work, they didn't eat, and they died. And so now we have fewer deaths. Well, one of the side effects of that is we have a lot of, you know, people that are on the welfare system. Well, there was no welfare system for Mephibosheth. You don't work you don't eat, and you starve to death. Well, the only option for these people was to beg. They would sit on the side of the road and it's like, my leg is busted up, please, could you help me? And the people that would pass by that you know, felt motivated to give would give. And this wasn't like your, your WIC card that you would go down and slide your EBT card at Walmart. This was like, people were poor back then. You, know, you had to work all day, every day, just to survive the winter. And the generosity on top of that was not like the generosity that we experience today. So imagine Mephibosheth is living in this mud hut in a town called Lodabar. And Lodabar, the, the meaning in Hebrew, means a break of connection, that there's something that's been, that's been broken, broken in a connection. So this kid, who is a grandson of the king of Israel, he was the first king of Israel's grandson, so imagine him sitting in the palace. Imagine what his destiny would have been like had David not taken over the throne. Well, he's sitting there begging for scraps, barely living in this mud hut in Lodabar for 30 years. He is on the run because it, he thinks like an old mob boss. You know, it's like if a new mob boss comes to town and kills all the old mob bosses, anybody in the old mob boss's family goes into like 
Secret, or not Secret Service, uh, Witness Protection. And you can't use your real name. I hope no one ever finds out that I'm Saul's grandson. Well, kid named Ziba, who served Jonathan his whole life, David sitting on the throne 30 years after that, Mephibosheth's in Lodabar for 30 years. David's sitting on the throne and says one day, and this is in 2 Samuel 9, says, hey, is there anybody still in the household of Saul? And Ziba says, yeah, there's this one kid. And I've always like resonated with the story of, of uh, Mephibosheth because everybody in here, like we all have an area of our lives that we've been dropped as a kid. You know, some of us probably more than others. You know, Mephibosheth landed on his, on his legs and some of us got dropped on our heads when we were babies. But when I was growing up, I, I was born in uh, Cookville, like on Quinlan Lake Road, like I could, you know, it's half a mile down the road. Um, parents you know, got together and it was just, it was beautiful. And then dad had a, a drinking problem, a pretty significant drinking problem. And when you're young, that seems like a fun thing, you know. Hey, yeah, that guy Gary, man, he knows how to party. Well, eventually that gets old. And if you've never been around an alcoholic, like the fun wears off pretty quick. And so um, when I was born, the night I was born, dad was actually um, at a bar over by Tech before cell phones. So everybody was trying to reach him. So my grandmother was literally calling every bar in the phone book trying to find my dad and his, uh, and his friend to say, hey, uh, your son's getting born. My mom went into, went into labor, and they said that, you know, you're not, allowed, you're not supposed to go to the hospital until contractions are like a certain amount of time apart. Well, they started smaller than that. And so mom was like, well, I need to wait until they get further apart. And so went over to my grandmother's house at like two o'clock in the morning. It's like, well, they're here. I'm waiting for them. It's like, honey, it doesn't go the other way. Like we got to go to the hospital. So my grandmother, you know, drives me and my mom, uh, my mom and I to the hospital. So she uh, misses her epidural, which you could ask her about that story. She's very fond of telling us, you made me miss my epidural. So mom had a natural childbirth with me. Way to go, mom. And so she gets born. My dad's not there because he's drunk at a bar. So he finally gets in. They sober him up enough to, to experience the beautifulness that is me. Well, he doesn't stop drinking. He had a job at Fleet Guard and eventually loses his job at Fleet Guard because he can't stop drinking. And mom is just like, I have had enough of this. Um, I have vivid memories. And I know that I was a little kid, but I have vivid memories of hiding underneath the kitchen table because like plates are being thrown by. And, you know, when I would... Uh, take care of my, my dad's yard and take care of my grandmother's yard, I would find uh, blue pottery that I remember when I was a kid. And the only reason why that pottery, that I find the pottery as I'm mowing the yard is because I remember dad and mom throwing plates at each other and throwing uh, coffee cups at each other out in the yard. So we were that family that shows up, you know, on cops. It's like, who is the redneck down the road that's yelling at each other? That was us. So mom bounces and we go down to Jackson County and I'd I, I joke about Jackson County a lot, but I do not have any good memories of living in Jackson County. Went into the school system, second grade, just went through a nasty divorce, nasty divorce. And so I am a despondent, weird little second grader. And one of my main memories of, of being in second grade, we had this really poor kid. Like, I, I feel really bad for him. I, I remember that he smelled really funny, um, and I remember that he was always dirty. And not like, you got a smudge, like really dirty. Um, but he talked a lot. And so the teacher, to protect the rest of the class from this kid, and I wish I remembered his name, she put a refrigerator box around him. 
So that was, you know, good teaching practices so that the rest of the class didn't have to, to deal with it. And so, like, I stayed quiet. Um, and I remember in third grade, and people parent and people teach the best that they can do. So, I, like, I don't hold fault against my teachers. I mean, it was a dumb idea. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't, it's dumb. But I don't fault them. They were just trying to do the best that they could. My third grade teacher, I remember we were lined up waiting to go to the water fountain. We had to stand on the third block from the wall. So we're waiting there for the teacher to, to do something in the office. And another teacher comes, comes down, and she was like the mean, like, nurse hatchet teacher, the one that you prayed that you didn't make mad. Well, her son came in, and as he left, he gave her a, a kiss. And as a third grader, I was like, oh, they kissed? Well, this teacher went off on me. You need to mind your own business, you know. So I've, I'm like, I'm in trouble, and I don't get in trouble. I was the good kid. I don't get in trouble. So we're walking up to, the, to our room, which was on the second uh, floor, and a teacher or and a kid in the front of the class tattles. It was like, Justin got in trouble. And I remember my teacher said, what else is new? And I was like, and I remember that hitting me as a kid. It's like, I don't get in trouble, but my teacher thinks I'm always in trouble. Was always in trouble. Got threatened by, I never got paddled but I always got threatened by paddling because the teacher would say, if I didn't know your mother, I would beat you. I'm like, way to go, mom. You did an awesome job. Thank you for having relationships with my teachers so that they didn't beat me when I was a kid. But I got in trouble because I didn't talk to anybody and I was real slow to wake up. And if you know me now, I'm still kind of slow to wake up in the morning. Well, at school, like I would wake up at lunchtime and just be like, oh, I guess I'm at school now. Didn't really talk to anybody. Mom was working three jobs so I kind of lived with my grandparents. Um, eventually, mom was like, I can't drive back and forth to Nashville, so we've got to move to Nashville. Moved to Smyrna, had three years of, of pretty awesome experiences. Great neighborhood, great school, great teachers that really undid a lot of the weirdness that happened in second and third grade. Um, well, mom was driving back and forth from Smyrna to Nashville, and eventually she said, we got we to gotta move closer to the job just because I don't want to drive this far. So I moved to Antioch. So if you ever get the chance to live in Antioch, pass on that. Was not a great place to, to grow up. Well, year by year, we keep on moving. And as a kid, when you move and you lose all of your friends, you don't know anybody. And everybody starts at ground one. Like, we're all family here because we hang out. And it's like, hey, you know, I know that guy. But when you're the new guy, like, meet and greet is one of my favorite times ever because I feel popular in this room. But if I go to another church, meet and greet, I'm like, don't talk to me. Let me stand on the back of the wall. And it takes me a long time to get to know people because I don't feel popular. And I feel like no one knows me. They're going to judge me. I don't like this. Well, kids go through that. So every few years, we would celebrate a milestone in my life by like, hey, I'm going to get rid of all your friends. And we're going to start from scratch. So started from scratch in Antioch. And if you're going to start from scratch anywhere, that is not the school system to start from scratch in. And I just shut down. Um, mom was... And, like, I have a great relationship with my mom now. You know, she always hugs me on Sunday mornings. I love my mom. She's amazing. But at that time in her life, like, neither of us were making very good choices at all. Um, and so growing up, going home uh, from that to school, I didn't know anyone. I didn't want to know anyone. So I just stopped talking to people. Well, my teachers, you know, 40 people in a school system in, you know, an inner city school, they thought I had a mental handicap. And so they put me in the special ed classes, which I was cool with because I was awesome at math for once because it was coloring pages. You know, you just got to, like, I just got to color. So I didn't, you know, I didn't talk to anybody, didn't deal with anything. And eventually I got to the point with mom, um, I would have to 
This is horrible. Um, but I would have to like, hey, we need money because we need groceries because we don't have any food in our house. And I know that we say that a lot. Like, there is nothing to eat in my house. There was nothing to eat in our house. You know, there would be weeks that like, it's like, well, uh, we don't have lights this week. It's like, okay. And you make do. We had a fireplace, so we were, you know, we stayed warm. But it was really bad. And I remember in eighth, no, this was seventh grade. I remember in seventh grade, eventually going to mom and saying, I can't handle this. This is not good. You know, depending on what boyfriend she was going out at the time, you know, we would go like from house to house. And so I would get home two o'clock in the morning. So I never did homework because I never had a place to do homework at. And so I was really bad at school. And eventually I was like, I'm, I'm going to move in with dad. I can't handle you anymore. So in seventh or yeah, seventh grade, I moved back here, moved in with dad for about six months, realized that that was no better shape. I was like, I want to go back to mom, but I couldn't, so I moved in with my grandmother, and that was a life-saving opportunity. I moved in with my grandmother. If you ever get the chance to move in with your grandmother, do that. It's awesome. So reading through the story of Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth went, to a, went through a time that he got dropped when he was a kid. No fault of his own. He didn't make a bad choice. He wasn't lazy. He didn't have anything wrong with him mentally. He got dropped by someone that was supposed to be protecting him. And as a kid, I can mark off milestones in my life that I had people that were supposed to be there to protect me, but they dropped me. And because they dropped me, it crippled me. No fault of my own. I didn't do anything bad. I didn't make anyone mad at me. Just they dropped me. My teachers, when they were supposed to be there to fix the crap that I was dealing with, with my parents, dropped me. My parents, that were supposed to be providing for me, dropped me. And I had to eventually start parenting my parents, which no kid should ever have to do. And so a lot of the weirdness that I have is because I'm fighting through, like, I don't know that I can trust you because at any point in time, you can stop being dependable. At any point in time, you can lose your temper on me because, like my dad, my dad is an incredibly jolly, happy person until he's not. And if you've never dealt with like mood shifts, like we were laughing five seconds ago and now you're mad at me. I don't, kids can't handle that. And I, can, I still can't handle that. Like if we get in a tense situation, I am the first person to check out. Because it's like, hey, I had to grow up with people yelling at me. I'm an adult. I get to make my own choices. You start raising your voice at me, I'll go, hey, I'll see you. I don't have to deal with your weirdness. So King David sitting in his, uh, in his, on his throne Hey, Ziba, is there anybody of Saul's family? And he says uh, in 2 Samuel 9, I have a desire to show God's kindness to. So David is sitting there. I murdered your whole family, and I understand that. But I am wanting to show kindness to someone because of my relationship with Jonathan. And Ziba goes and finds Mephibosheth, lost in the wilderness, praying that David never hears his name. Ziba finds Mephibosheth, and says, King David wants to see you. Well, imagine what's going through his mind. Like, if you grew up in an environment that, like, cops were a good thing, awesome. But there's a lot of communities, like, when the cops show up, it's not a good thing. It's like, we need to get out of here. We need to stop it, whatever it is that we're doing, and we need to bounce. Well, Mephibosheth grew up in that environment. And imagine David's honorage showing up in Lodabar looking for Mephibosheth. But he's crippled, and he can't run. So he finally goes, yeah, I'm Mephibosheth. Comes into David's court, 
standing in front of David, and David says, are you Mephibosheth? He says, uh, yes. He says, you get to sit at my table forever. You get to eat everything that I eat, and this uh, guy named Ziba that went and got you, I'm going to take away all of his household goods, and I'm going to give to you. He's still going to manage everything, but you get the benefit from it. What do I have to do? Nothing. Just because you were born into the right family, I am going to bless you. You never have to lift another finger as long as you live. Just sit there and eat. That's all you have to do. Like, where can I apply for that job? Just sit there and eat? Yep. Awesome. Well, um, when I came to church here, there was a guy, um, uh, it was the pastor's kid, and his name was Chris, on stage right here during a school play, pulls out a butterfly knife. And I love knives. I've always loved knives. And my first thought was, A, you're not a typical pastor's kid. B, you're not allowed to have a butterfly knife. C, you're definitely not allowed to have a butterfly knife and pull it out on somebody. So I went up to him um, at school at Every Trace, still in special, uh, uh, special ed classes, because they didn't know what was wrong with me. And as I start hanging out with my grandmother and I start learning a new way of life, I start kind of unfolding. We used to shoot rubber bands at Chris because they would never hit him. And I, it seems like the dumbest thing in the world. But we, we always talked about, and none of us believed in God, but we always talked about how the pastor's kid had angels that would deflect the rubber bands off of him. Well, I'm sitting back there um, where Miss Louisa is sitting right now, um, and Christopher, the cool kid in the youth group, comes up to me. I'm sitting there with my grandmother. She manipulated and guilted me into coming to church. Um, excellent tactic, by the way. Um, so I'm sitting there, and uh, Christopher comes up and says, like, hey, uh, the teens sit over here. Do you want to come sit with us? And on the outside, because I'm a guy, it's like, sure. But on the inside, <laughs> cool kids coming to talk to me. So I got really excited. So I went to go sit on, over there with them. I'm telling you, that one little motion right there changed my life forever. Because just like Ziba, sitting in David's court, got sent out. It's like, go find Mephibosheth and bring him to me. We're all sitting here, and there are, there are multiple areas in our life that we resemble Mephibosheth. There is always an area in our life that we feel crippled. Something about us is not right. Not, no fault of anybody. You didn't make a bad choice. Someone that was there to protect you failed at their job and you got crippled. I hate it for you. Welcome to humanity. We're all crippled in some way, shape, or form. There is all, or there's an area in all of us that we are like Zeba, that we are sitting in the court of the king and the king sends us out to go find someone that's crippled. And that message of sending fixes and changes people's destiny. And there's always an area in us that's, that's like David because we are seated in Christ. There is an element of us that we are sitting there at the right hand of the Father and we get to pick you. We're not sent out. I have the desire. I want to show God's kindness to you. Why? Don't care. But you get to be the one that's picked. And so when we're sitting here tonight, it is easy for us to, to get frustrated at the people that are around us because of their crippledness. It is easy for us to get kind of self-pity and start moping around because of our own crippledness. Well, I'm not going to do anything because my dad. I'm not going to do anything because my mom. And we get stuck in Lodabar. We get stuck in that mud hut just whining and begging for scraps. Maybe if I hurt bad enough, someone will pay attention to me. And your pain and your, your torment is not what attracts God to you. 
What attracts God to you is because you were born in the right family. You were born in his family. So when we go to God, we don't go to God with our crippledness. We go to God with our last name. Hey, God, you died for me. I've been brought into your family, so I get to receive your blessings just because I'm that awesome. Well, there's always an area of us that are like Zeba. God is sending us out to our people. And it's not because like I've got bottomless pockets that I can give out to anybody because eventually my bank account runs dry. However, when God sends us out to people, we have an unending bank account because Zebo was not in charge of fixing Mephibosheth's life. Zebo was in charge of bringing Mephibosheth to David and there was no end to David's resources. He was Solomon's daddy, you know, like he knew how to manage stuff. So Zebo went out and brought him into the provision just the same way that Chris went out. Chris didn't fix my life, but he was the messenger that went out and snatched me out of weirdness. I mean, it took years. I mean, it's still taking years to get me out of some of that stuff because some of us is still just like, I don't want to go into David's court. He might kill me. But there is part of everything that's amazing about me is because someone went out and got me. That is one of the reasons why I will take a bullet for Pastor Paul because when I didn't have a father, he stepped in. And he fathered me and he shepherded my heart. When I didn't have an older brother to teach me what I was doing was wrong or right, he came in and he was an older brother. When I didn't have friends, he came in and he was a friend to me. And that means more than anything. So like, regardless of what we go through in life, Pastor Paul, I will take a bullet for any day, regardless of what's going on, because of who he is to me and what he did for me at a perfect time, at an amazing time. And there are people in your life that are trying to reach out and pull you out of your weirdness. But that shame of rejection, the shame of your crippledness makes us want to fight and makes us want to defend. So tonight I'm saying like, hey, recognize the area that's crippled in your life. Recognize the thing. It's like every time you put weight on that thing, your life falls apart. There's something there that needs to get fixed. There is somebody in your life that God is trying to send you to. Hey, I don't care if you show kindness to that person. Just go get them so I can show kindness to them. I have a desire to show God's kindness to that person. And there, is an area, there are people in your life that you are sitting in the position of David, that you just get to, because you are blessed the way that you are, you get to pick out of a crowd you. I'm picking you to be nice to you. I'm picking you to be kind to you. I am the one that is going to foot the bill for this. And you get to be the role of God. You get to mirror the role of God to that person. We get to mirror the role of Ziba to people. But at the same time, we are also Mephibosheth, desperately looking for David's, desperately looking for Ziba's in our life to help shepherd us out of those bad things because it's not knowledge. It's not wisdom. It's not anything written down on a page that fixes it. It's relationships. Like David did not send a leaflet. He did not send a tract to Mephibosheth. It was like, hey, send this to Lodabar. I hope it falls in the right place. It was a person that had to go out and get him. So as, as amazing as tracts might or might not be, as amazing as like, hey, here's a letter that I want to send you, that's not going to fix somebody's life. You befriending someone and bringing them to Jesus that's the thing that fixes them. So let's just pray. Father, we lift up our, uh, our crippledness to you, God, and the, the thing that stinks about it is that the thing that hurts the worst about us, we very rarely can perceive. I don't realize that my legs are jacked up as much as they are. I don't realize that my heart is full of as much venom as it is. So Holy Spirit, tonight, we just lift up our hearts to you 
and ask you, the great physician, to come in with your surgeon's scalpel and cut away the diseased flesh, God. God, that you would cut away strongholds in our life. God, that you would cut away uh, demonic influences. God, that you would cut away um, defense mechanisms that we have put up to shore up a wall that just needs to be knocked down, God. God, we are broken and needy people, God, and we confess that to you. But God, thank you that you have brought us into the place that we can be fixed, God. God, thank you for your provision towards us, Lord. Even though that we can look in our lives sometimes and not feel, not perceive your provision, God, thank you that we are now seated at the king's table and all we have to do is receive your goodness. It's not dependent on me to work the fields. It's not dependent on me to earn the works of salvation. It's, it's dependent on me to be a, a willing recipient of the goodness that you pour into our lives. Lord, I pray that, uh, that you would sear names and faces onto our hearts, God, the people that we are supposed to go out and get, God, the people that we are supposed to go out and send the message of reconciliation to, God. Put those names on our hearts, God, and I pray that you would pour in courage to our lives, that we wouldn't, uh, we wouldn't waste time, God. We wouldn't even wait to get home to send a text, God. Show us who you have sent us out to to show kindness and to show goodness to, God. God, and show us the areas in our lives, God, that we need to act like King David and just uh, not even uh, check with headquarters and just go out and begin to pour out the amazing blessing of your gospel to people, God. Uh, we ask for your direction, for your leading, for your guiding, God. We ask that you would send friends and, and parents and brothers and sisters into our lives, God, to, to fix the roles that, uh, that other people have failed in us, God. But, we got, but God, we know that ultimately I was not born into my family. I was not born into anyone else's family. I have been born into your family. And Jesus, you meet every role that I could ever want. If my mom falls apart, it doesn't matter because you are a perfect provider. If my dad falls apart, it doesn't matter because you are a perfect provider. And it is within the family of God that we, we now find our identity and we find our refuge. And we bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. There is something there. Write it down. Write down an area of crippledness, a crippletude, crippled being in your life. Dance track. Um, write down a person's name that you have been sent to and write down an area that you need to be a king to. And I want you to, to notice, now that you kind of know a little bit of my, because I'm telling you, I could talk for hours about this. Now that you know a little bit of my, back, my background and my backstory, every time that me and my mom hug, I'm telling you, I can't put into words the miracle that that is because we fought like cats and dogs, and now she is an amazing person. We have text conversations. Well, she has a lot of conversations, and I have kind of one-word answers. But the, her heart opening up towards the things of the Spirit and the things of this body, because I'm telling you, every time that she's come in here broken and wounded and hurt, the things that she says, they, they are so loving up there. They are so loving up there. I'm telling you, because if she hints religious funk, she hits the door. She's got a sixth sense about that stuff. And the reason that she has been able to open up is because of a loving heart and a loving family like you guys. So thank you for helping me and my family. Let's uh, real quick just go before the Lord about our uh, prayer requests. Um, our, we have a prayer list at each of the doors with uh, concerns that our family has written into and cards that we can fill out to say, hey, thinking about you, praying for you, um, yeah, it's, it's nice to receive those cards. So as, uh, as we leave tonight, make sure you go grab those prayer cards. We just have two on the list tonight. So 
Father, we lift up uh, Carlin to you right now, God, and we just um, we just speak to that those blood clots, God, to all those veins to to her uh, to her brain, to every other part of her body, that it would start functioning and forming the way that it was designed. Lord, you know how we are knit together better than any physician, and you know how to fix us better than any physician that has ever lived. So, Lord, we lift up Carlin to you, God, and we just speak complete and total healing over you in the name of Jesus. Lord, we lift up Bruce, God, as he's been dealing with COPD, God. We just extend uh, the, the shepherding rod over him, God, and we come against the attack of the enemy, even if the attack is dumb choices that, uh, that he's made in life, God, we extend our protection over him as the family of God. And we say that the COPD complications have to stop right now in the name of Jesus. And we release your healing touch into both of this family's life, God. We lift up our families to you. We lift up our friends to you, God. Those in our lives that are, that are lost, that are wounded, that are hurting, God, we release healing into their lives, God, that you would stop the plan of the enemy in its tracks, God, that you would confuse whatever the enemy has devised and has planned for the people in this body and for those that are affected by the people in this body, God. And we release your kingdom on earth, God. We release your will on earth, God. We release hope and purpose into our family and into our friends, God. God, thank you for your blessing, God. Thank you for for your shepherding heart, God. Thank you for your personality towards me, God. Thank you for our love, God. And thank you that we are all caught up into your grace, I thank you in Jesus' name, amen. You guys have a fantastic evening.